This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. What parents want at the end of the day, and what I think an educational institution owes you, is make students safe, keep parents informed. It's all you ask at the end of the day. Um, and we've got one parent joining us right now who says that's not happening at their school. And, and in fact, if it's not happening at one school, it probably isn't happening at many others. That's me saying that, not necessarily then. Livy Jacobs joins us right now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. Your story, first of all, I'm sure I'm not the first to compliment you on bravery. It just feels like we're in this vacuum with Maybe I don't want to say this school board operates uniquely so, but um, I don't see trustees doing enough to speak out. I sure don't see the director of education. It's left to you, a school council parent, to point out some flaws in the system where you just want to know things and and you shouldn't have to hear things from your kids. You should hear them from the schools, correct? Yes, that's accurate. Yes, and I would have to say that, uh, so let's backtrack for a second. We learned from our kids that there was some graffiti in the school when we inquired, we found that there were swastikas. Naturally, at the same time, we were receiving a lot of concerned messages from uh, par- from, mes- from other parents. So we took it to administration, who were incredibly supportive in sharing um, their concern and that this is like unacceptable behavior. So we asked, okay, so you know, why aren't you telling us? And we were told at that time that their hands are tied, that there's a new procedure that the TDSB has uh, implemented, I suppose. Uh, But it's a procedure, not a policy. And my understanding is that a policy is something that gets voted on, for example, by the trustees. Uh, But this is a procedure, so there's a different protocol to passing it. Um, Anyhow, we ended up uh, contacting the uh, superintendent, the trustee, the TDSB, just expressing our concern and dismay and uh, in that information is not able to be shared. At that point, uh, Shelly Laskin, who's our trustee, did speak up and out and voiced her concern in not having been informed uh, or not having been um, part of this decision-making process, rather. So there's some awareness and uh, there's definitely some outrage from parents that uh, that continue to receive messages. Um, sharing their concern and their outrage that we don't have this information. That's what the procedure. Um, yeah. yeah, it's problematic. Livy, how how old is your son or daughter who saw the swastikas in the bathroom? I have twin girls. They're in fourth grade. How'd that impact them to bring home that story? Were they even hesitant? Kids at nine, I remember being nine and being scared to tell my parents stuff. How did that conversation manifest itself? Well, they were confused. They, had, they know about uh, the, the Holocaust, they know about the Second World War, but they're also just learning about it, right? Uh, but it wasn't just them that, that noticed this. So it sparked a lot of conversations at school the next day, a lot of, I guess, rumors and, and misinformation, and, and, and teachers had to deal with this too. So they have to explain to kids that are so young a little bit of context behind what's happening. Um, and, you know, these kids are frightened, the younger ones, younger than my children. They're frightened. They're, they're concerned. So their parents are now contacting us. It's a cycle of, um, of, of, of a demand from parents for information so that we can properly guide our children, right? Without, you said it earlier, without that information, what are, like, how can we uh, best guide our kids? Um, it's Livy Jacobs joining us, um, who's part of a parent council in, uh, at a Toronto district school. Did you hesitate in saying something for fear of any 
repercussions, ramifications, et cetera. And I guess I'd, I'd look and say marks. Like that's the first thing that I would think of. Is a teacher going to take this personally? Oh. Or do you think most of the teachers are on your side about this and they want parents to be informed? Yeah, we've actually had teachers approach us saying, thank you for saying something. And our administration, like we run a very inclusive and, and we don't run it. We have a very, we're part of a very inclusive and wonderfully diverse school community. And, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people are, are shocked uh, to, to learn that there's this culture of silence that is now coming from the top uh, at a time when we shouldn't be silent. As you had talked about earlier, uh, we're seeing, you know, uh, we're seeing reference to uh, to atrocities that happened uh, earlier. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine a principal when you went to school or I went to school, Livy, that Mm -hmm. is that is in that that knows of this and is not Mm -hmm. allowed to Mm -hmm. inform parents about incidents like this. They don't notify the community about incidents of hate. And that's every right. That's anti-black racism. That's Islamophobia. That's whatever. Mm -hmm. Parents. Absolutely. What are we doing that principals feel that powerless? It boggles my mind. Well, in, I will say three years ago or in 2019, we had a different principal. There was another incident uh, with spray painting graffiti and anti-racism. Blurred, anti-Semitic slurs that was that 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 was on our exterior wall at the school. Uh, police were informed. Uh, the proper protocol was, was followed, and at that time, the principal informed parents. He wrote a very wonderful note expressing details yeah. of the incident, what happened, and how it doesn't reflect our incredible community um, and what we are doing to counter. Uh, these sorts of behaviors and to educate and inform our kids and our families. So, do, you, do you still yeah, want more? Do you still want more from trustees? I know you had, I know Shelly Laskin sent an email, but do you want more? We, we elect them, right? They're paid. Yeah. I, <laughs> I do. I want to see a lot more. Um, I, I want to see change. So whatever that takes, yeah. uh, I think that we need to, hmm. we need to remove this uh, culture of silence and, and, and inform parents of what's happening. I'm glad you spoke up, um, and uh, and we've got your back here. Thanks very much for doing this today. Thank you. Livy Jacobs joining us, the TDSB Parent Council Rep. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. A lot of developments in on the education front, least of which was um, that a court ruling uh, went the way of the plan to have all educators take, uh, in essence, a basic math test uh, to be a teacher in the province of Ontario. To discuss that, amongst other issues, we welcome on uh, Stephen Lecce, who's the Minister of Education for Ontario. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for making the time. Thanks, Greg. Good to be back. Um, this You sort of pushed this out about a year, year and a half ago, uh, the concept of this mandatory math test. What was the genesis of it? What was the emphasis that you wanted to place on on just those basics and having teachers have those skills, Stephen? Look, you know, when, when we came to power in 2018, folks, the, the majority of children, the, the majority of kids were not meeting the provincial math standard. We have a real challenge when it comes to building those found fundamental skills that we know are going to help kids succeed. Financial literacy, numeracy skills, these things matter in life and in the economy. And so we are across the board overhauling how we educate when it comes to math. We've changed the curriculum. We've mandated financial literacy in every grade. We have doubled the amount of math coaches in our schools. We've added a math lead in every board so that there's real accountability on school boards to get back to the basics and focus on numeracy. <clears throat> but we also believe educators have a role, too, to level up. And I believe fundamentally that a grade nine math standard sets out the minimum requirement for new educators so that they can 
be better positioned to help ensure these kids understand math, use math in their lives, and frankly, uh, are competent in one of the areas where we have seen really low skills when it comes to EQAO. So this underpins the government's longstanding position. Everyone's got to level up. And I really do believe we, we've got to, we've got to, Yes, make the investments in math, but we also have to set higher expectations when it comes to mathematics in our classrooms. The data I'm looking at shows 95% of uh, people who wrote the test one or more times were successful. That includes 93% of candidates from racialized groups. And Stephen, it you you're allowed. It's a little like getting your beginners when you're driving. People people the right. government wants to let people drive. You'll get an unlimited number of attempts to pass it. No one's going to be banned from teaching if you don't get it right the first time. And I think that was just that was so lost in the translation from some of the groups that were pushing back on this. You know, I just think we have to stand up as a government to some of the you know entrenched interests that don't want us to elevate standards, don't want us to change the system, because it's been like that for 20 years. And the frank, the results of that system and the lack of political courage to improve the system and hold people to account is we have many kids not meeting the standards of mathematical competence. That's, that's a failure of political leadership over decades. And so the premier and the government is stepping up saying, look, I get it. It's, you know, it may be a bit more difficult, no doubt, but it's necessary if we want to help put these kids on a good path to good jobs. And I think for us, it's a no brainer. It's an obviously in the right interest of children. And I think parents demand that we do everything humanly possible so that we get back to basics in Ontario schools. Yes, focusing on literacy, but on math. And those are the two fundamental subjects that I think could help open up doors for these kids. So we're going to stand by this. The court was unanimous in the ruling, and I think it, uh, it underscores our, my longstanding position um, that mathematical yeah. skills are going to help these kids succeed in life. You mentioned back to basics right there. I see a ton of studies from um, the 50 U.S. states and, and combined as a country about learning loss and how it's been measured post-pandemic. We had a, a lot of days and weeks with students either learning at home or schools closed in Ontario. We know that. Are you getting fresh data? Are you getting things across your desk in the ministry's desk that's documenting just how far behind our students are? I don't see a ton of it. I wonder if you do. Yeah, you know, we do have data from EQAO. I mean, remember, some of the same people who did not want us to change our math curriculum did not want us to bring back EQAO after the pandemic. I thought it was necessary. We need a baseline to measure uh, progress or, you know, re- regression. Uh, we need to understand the baseline if we seek to improve the, uh, and um, get the kids back on track. And so we did bring back EQAO testing for grade three, six, and nine that tests literacy and math skills across the grades. And what we've seen in Ontario, unlike in virtually every province and and jurisdiction, is that Ontario has seen either, um, at worst, it's sort of flatlined, and at best, we're seeing across the board, virtually every measurement is up. We're actually on the right track of improving when it comes to learning law. So that's a good sign, but I would admit, first admit, there's a lot of work to do. It's why I make the case every day and every time I can that if we want to improve educational outcomes, improve reading, writing, and math skills and help with their you know, mental health and physical health and the other elements that are, that are so important to the yeah. welfare of a child, then we need to make sure that these kids stay in school, which is why we have signed deals with unions. We've been constructive, focused on the kids. And of course, there's yeah. two outstanding deals to get. And I just will hope that the Catholic and French unions are listening today and understand that the government stands ready to sign this deal today so we could give it that sense of predictability, that routine to every child in Ontario.
Um, last week, I know uh, 2,000 parents signed a letter to you alleging incidents of anti-Semitism in Toronto schools. We had uh, a concerned parent from a parent council on earlier just for our audience and for you for clarification. I want you to hear just a quick clip of Livy Jacobs, who called our show earlier today. We were told at that time that their hands are tied, that there's a new procedure that the TDSB has uh, Im- implemented, I suppose. Uh, but it's a procedure, not a policy. And my understanding is that a policy is something that gets voted on, for example, by the trustees. Uh, but this is a procedure, so there's a different protocol to passing it. I mean, Stephen, the headline in the Toronto Star is pretty simple. Parents stunned to hear about swastikas at TDSB school from their children and non-administrators. And they love this principle. The woman who called me said that, and she said the principal says, my hands are tied. I can't let you know that these things are happening in the schools. What's wrong with the system when this transpires? Yeah, I mean, I read that article as well, and I've, of course, been following this issue at TDSB. You know, boards have different communication protocols on these incidents. So what TDSB is doing is not necessarily what the rest of Ontario is doing. Uh, each board comes up with a communication protocol that works for their parents. But I think as a default, I think transparency is important. If you know, we've got to shine light on this, these hateful acts if we seek to change cultures and the hearts and minds of our kids. And that's why I've, I've said to school boards, immediately following the October 7th uh, terrorist attack, we need to <clears throat> lean into the Holocaust education. We need to be transparent with parents and we need to be zero tolerance on children or staff who uh, propagate, you know, racism or anti-Semitism, most specifically, that is very much sharply on the rise and it's a great threat to our country, to our democracy. It's it's very troubling. So for that parent that called, um, I can appreciate that frustration. And I think what I can simply let her know is at the highest levels, we have to hold board directors, chairs, and everyone in between. But we expect them to act when they see hate. We expect them to intervene with sanction and accountability on anyone that um, that allows these types of, uh, you know, the age-old tropes of, of anti-Semitism to exist and fester within our schools. It's just, it's not going to be allowed. How do you make school boards, been, uh, apologies to interrupt, uh, how do you make school boards accountable if they do color outside the lines, if they won't let principals, in essence, run their schools like we expect them to be run? Well, we've set out some pretty high expectations from the ministry perspective that set out um, guidelines. For one, we're saying to the employer, the school board, they need to take zero tolerance on staff Mm. uh, that, um, you know, advance inappropriate racist uh, or um, demonstrate poor judgment. Uh, That type of activity on their social media, their personal activity, that matters professionally. Uh, We're asking them to take zero tolerance when they see students uh, take on these types of inappropriate words or, uh, or as you're saying, um, yeah. graffiti has more than just words that, that comes with very profound impacts. The reason why we mandated Holocaust education last, this, for this year, we're the only province to have it in place this year in elementary schools because we got ahead of this last year when we announced it because we knew yeah. something problematic is happening in our society. We need education. It is the greatest weapon against this division and hate. And I believe by doing so, we set the tone. But I do understand and I do hear the frustration, particularly TDSB. It's unacceptable when parents feel like they're not getting yeah. the level of support that they need at a very difficult time. Both of so us. I will reaffirm today and to boards in private the necessity for better customer service and, frankly, just better support for Jewish children and all kids in our schools of different heritage and faith. They should not be in a position yeah. where they feel like, you know, uh, they're, they're on their own.
that's that's not that's not what we're about in Ontario's publicly funded schools. That's no good. Both of us are tight for time. Many TDSB trustees tell me, and they won't come on the air and say this publicly. They feel this comes from the top, from the director, Colleen Russell Rollins. Have you had a conversation with her since October seventh about what's happening in this system? My ministry has absolutely had direct conversations with the director and leadership at my request, and I have called all directors and chairs uh, for several meetings uh, as a sort of uh, we do conferences. Yeah. This is unprecedented where I've pretty much laid out my expectations clearly and unequivocally what I want. Are they being met? Teams. Well, I think in many cases, yes. In many cases, there's clear need for improvement. Okay. Uh, and I think that's probably the reality in our publicly funded schools in, in, in every measurement. But on mm. this issue, I think we need to be much more yeah. Uh, cautious and frankly, much more proactive in denouncing this. I I, I hear too many incidents yeah. where parents are feeling this frustration. So for me, it's a takeaway that we got to keep pushing the system. Yeah. Zero tolerance, more accountability, and I appreciate you flagging it. Hear that loud and clear. Thanks for the time, Stephen. Thank you. That's Stephen Lecce, Minister of Education. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. So there is movement, but I'm not sure how positive it is, um, in front of the church that's near Kensington Market. We talked about this on Friday's show um, with a encampment that was going to be broken up by um, Toronto's city services. There were a couple other encampments that were broken up. There's just been a lot that's transpired since last Friday. It's hard to believe it's only been um, five days since that happened. Uh, Maggie Helwig is the reverend of Kensington Market's Church of St. Stephen in the Fields, and she's kind enough to join us now in Toronto today. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. I saw all these uh, abutments uh, and it's kind of concrete blocks, but maybe you see them because they're right in front of your church that the city set up yesterday. I was shocked to see them. Were you equally shocked staring out your window going, what on earth are they doing? Yes. Uh, well, actually staring out the door rather than the window. But okay. yes, it was, a, it was a complete surprise to me. I, I looked out the door. I saw a large group of city workers in reflective vests and city trucks and trucks filled with concrete blocks. So I walked across the street and said, so what's the plan here? And they said, oh, we thought you knew the plan. Um, and the plan apparently was to cover the south area, where, which had been cleared on Friday, with these big concrete blocks, which are now also surrounded by a fence. The fence had been there since Friday, but now it, it is surrounding a large area of concrete blocks. And, and just to paint the picture for our audience who haven't seen the footage, Maggie, these aren't like these aren't bricks you'd use to build, uh, you know, a fireplace or something. These are these look like they're six feet high. In essence, they're, they almost look like giant white tubs with a metal thing on top so that you couldn't sleep on top of them or anywhere near them. Yes, that, that certainly seems to be the intention. They have they have these weird spiky tops. They are maybe five feet tall. They're very large, very heavy. Um, it's really an, an ugly thing to have covering a churchyard, which even long before the encampment has always been a, a safe and secure place for people who are homeless or vulnerable or marginalized. Are they on private property? They are on city property. Only, um, yeah. Now, to be clear, it, it is city property in the sense that every front yard on Bellevue Avenue on both sides is also city property. It is a transportation right-of-way. Mm. So is every other front yard. No uh, other front yard on Bellevue has been covered with giant uh, concrete blocks. Yeah, yeah. How do you, how do you, do you think they're, 
I'll use the word targeting um, your place and your church and your what was your encampment on Friday? Well, obviously, they are they are targeting the encampment. Obviously, there is in certain departments of the city a very strong wish to remove the encampment and to make sure that no vulnerable person can ever seek sanctuary in the churchyard again. Maggie Helwig is our guest on Toronto Today. Now, I have read, and I'm sure I've heard this a couple times, that at least five people accepted um, a shelter place after Friday's clearing. Aren't they aren't they in a better place in a shelter? Isn't this moving them towards getting back on their feet is the best way I can put it? Um, okay, is it a better place for them? Yes, because it's where they wanted to be. Is it helping them move towards permanent housing? Probably not. Emergency shelters very, very rarely act as a move towards permanent housing. Either people stay there for a period of time and are often evicted for very trivial reasons. But do they have better odds? They have better odds than, I mean, I I can't remember, I'm I'm being honest, I can't remember if you document or someone else did that some people have been living there 24 months. We've got better odds now with them in a shelter than 24 months in the same outdoor environment, don't we? Not very much, no. If you look at the number of people who move from the shelters to permanent housing, the odds actually aren't very different. And the people who've been living there for the longest time are actually the people who did not want to leave, who did not want to accept shelter space. There are people who have had bad experiences in city-run spaces before, sometimes extremely traumatizing experiences, and they are not willing to go back. That's why they've been in the churchyard for so long. You, I, I, you accept them at face value, um, that, I, and you should. If they say, hey, I had a bad experience with this, then I, I think that's fair to accept at face value. But do you do you just have to accept at face value that they're not having as traumatic an experience living in a tent outdoors than they did? Like like they're telling you they're in a more comfortable environment and and you believe them. I think if they weren't, they would leave. I think when people come to a place, stay in a place and say they feel comfortable in that place, that's reasonably convincing evidence that they are comfortable. They're they're adults who make their own choices and they could certainly leave the churchyard if they chose. Now, obviously it's not an ideal situation. Obviously what people need is permanent housing, which is accessible to them and appropriate to their needs. Obviously that is what everyone wants and should have. But right now that's not being offered to anybody. Um, the neighbors, what do they think of these new concrete abutments? I will I will certainly say if they thought the encampment was an eyesore, which is a word that they used, they must think this isn't much better. This is this is no solution. This hasn't been easy. You could understand it hasn't been easy for the residents to watch this transition from Friday go to where it is right now. It's no good for them. It isn't good for the church either. We're extremely upset about it. And many of the neighbors have been quite supportive of the encampment. The, the people who called it an eyesore, I think it's, it's a minority among the neighbors. One of the big concerns I'm hearing from neighbors is that these concrete blocks are being erected directly around trees, which is in violation of the city's tree guidelines and has a good chance of killing the trees in the yard. So I think a lot of people are actually phoning in complaints about that. I got, and I don't blame them for doing that. You say it's a minority of residents. Are, are, that's based, the minority of residents are... Um, are, are wanting there to be no encampments, but that can't mean a majority of residents are cool as a cucumber with the encampments, can it? Maybe they just don't sure weigh in? 
It can? Sure, it can. This is Kensington Market. Neighbors stop by all the time to say hello, to drop off warm clothes or some food, to get to know the people in the encampment. On the whole, the community's actually been very supportive. It's Kensington Market. We're really used to this kind of thing. But, 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 but if this was your house and the church is across the street, I haven't heard anyone put this to you, you would, you'd have mixed emotions about it. How could you not? Of course, everyone has mixed emotions about the fact that people are living on the street rather than in permanent housing. Obviously, I have mixed, I don't have mixed emotions. I'm upset about that. I love the people in the encampment and I want them to be able to stay there until they have something that is better and is right for them. But I don't want them sleeping in a tent in, you know, below zero weather forever. I understand. People have mixed emotions. I understand. But I can tell you one of one of the people who lives more or less directly across the street also volunteers at our meal programs and has quite close friendships with people in the encampment. Um, do you see any open drug use that concerns you? I see open drug use. This is a problem of people not having housing to use drugs in their housing, like many many other people do. Do you see do you see violence? I'm I'm asking if if there's ever been a point in time where you would say to somebody, "Listen, I've got a huge heart. I I I'm an activist, but I can't have you here because it's a threat to anybody else in 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 the encampment itself." Um, I've never reached that point. I the level of violence in the encampment has not been high. There's yeah. there's really not been a lot of serious violence. Would you like this? Would you like the city? Would you like the mayor to reach out to you personally on this? It feels like a ten-minute phone conversation would move the move the needle in no pun intended in one way or the other. Would it not? It would have to. I've spoken to the mayor several times. The city in the last few days, though, not in the last few days. That's what I think we need. Um, I think the city is a really gigantic and complex organism, and to speak as if the mayor could snap her fingers and change a situation that's built up over 30 years is, is maybe a bit naive. No, I know. But in the here and now, someone tells Olivia Chow, hey, we're putting all these concrete blocks in front of in front of this church. She knows about this. She knew about Friday. You should, yeah. yeah. Um, this, a city councillor has a great deal of power in their own ward, and our city councillor has been extremely hostile. I am much more inclined to see the city councillor as orchestrating most of That's it. Diane Sachs to clarify, right? Yes, it is Diane Okay. Sachs. Um, Maggie, I appreciate the time and I'm out of it, but I appreciate you answering all my questions and let's have more conversations about this going forward. It, this matters. This matters to everybody in the city. So I appreciate you coming on today. All right. Thank you very much. You bet. Maggie uh, Helwig joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. On the story we mentioned, um, which I think it caught a lot of people off guard, um, not just the numbers, but the lack of responsibility to uh, to levels of government to help people leaving Ontario jails find a home. It was in the Globe and Mail. Molly Hayes wrote it uh, on Monday, but it's gotten a lot of attention. A few people sending it along to me and saying, what do you think? Is the provincial government culpable here? It's a fascinating discussion. I want to bring on Dale Gunter, who's the professor, is a professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton. Dale, it's great to have you on Toronto today. Thank you for the time. Thanks, Greg. These numbers jumped out at a lot of people that one in five of inmates find themselves homeless or on the street. Um, uh, is this a growing phenomenon that's concerning? 
Um, it is absolutely. It's growing there, but it's growing everywhere else as well. Uh, so uh, there is a problem at the jails. There is a problem with people uh, leaving hospitals, and there has been a growing problem that we've all been experiencing uh, simply in the community uh, from shelters and from encampments. Uh, it's really hard to house people no matter where we are right now. I had a lot of people point the finger at the province and provincial government, and the Ford government certainly wouldn't be the first, but the concept is the provincial government um, is taking, we could debate the level of responsibility they should take, Dale, but they're taking basically no responsibility when someone's coming out of prison. What should they be doing? Well, we, I mean, uh, (laughs) let's uh, face it, the justice system is a, is pretty broken. Uh, so are lots of other systems. Uh, my health system is broken as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, uh, we, we, we do need to be saying what is it that people need when they leave this place. I have to say it's challenging. You know, m- m- most people leave our short-term uh, facilities, uh, that's our provincial facilities, um, without a lot of warning at all. In fact, sometimes no warning. Uh, the, you know, the court decides that it's uh, okay for them to go and out they go. And uh, we've been scrambling to try and figure out what to do uh, to get them housed in the meantime or that kind of thing. But there's no doubt that uh, uh, it's it's not nearly enough effort going into uh, getting people stabilized on their way out. You hear some of the stories of people who were previously incarcerated trying to start a new life. What do they tell you? Yeah, um, well, I mean, the first thing is that uh, you're, you're going through culture shock. You know, you've been inside where everything has a, a, a routine, a rhythm. Uh, things are provided for you. You don't have to think about where your next meal is going, uh, is coming from. And uh, then the gate opens and suddenly it's chaos. I mean, what do you do? You start, you start being a hunter-gatherer again, just like you were before. Most, I mean, a lot of people who are being released into homelessness uh, arrived from homelessness as well. So um, there's no red carpet out there that uh, they came in on, and it's not, there's not one to go out on. Um, so they're, they're very vulnerable from the minute the gate opens, and I think terrified of how they're going to uh, keep their life together uh, if they did get it together a little bit more while they were inside. Is there potential for a mechanism then to get put into place so everyone gets released to some form of housing? Someone again, we're not going to set these people up in a in a penthouse condo and say, hey, it's it's free for this amount of time. But somebody brings up in the comments, Dale, the idea of transition housing beds that exist in a supervised situation. They write that allow a person to get on their feet and become normalized with living out in the world again, um, keeping them away from potential vices. It doesn't drugs, drinking, gambling, spending too much money like there needs to be an element of transition housing is what the person suggests. Yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, there are a lot of great ideas out there, Greg, and, mm. um, and very little, very few of them have been, uh, have had a chance, have been tried. Um, everything from having a, a mobile service um, at the gate that uh, is the first thing that everybody sees when they come out um, that can try, kind of try to direct them to, um, uh, to, to actual receiving organizations outside, and they're ready, they're wanting to, there would need to be more of them, and there would need to be more work that they can do, but um, absolutely, there could be places that would house people that have reserved, there are some that have some reserved beds, you know, that are only for people yeah. coming out of jail, but it's really, really small number, so yeah, it, it could absolutely happen. We're going from people who are coming out um, sometimes quite a lot more stable than they went in, and it's a it's an amazing opportunity to try and keep that momentum going 
uh, once they get out, but it's like, you mm. know, dropping them back in the ocean is, is what's happening right now. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can imagine we if we all were um, in prison, Dale, regardless of why we we're there, we'd say, I'm going to I'm going to have these this amount of meals and I'm going to go here and I haven't been able to do this in forever. So it's it's not about just excess itself, but but they're, you know, like you said, they're sort of set out with it, just no idea how to fit into the universe. And some people might say, well, you should learn, but we can help. It, it will then later be on the individual, but we can help them along the way, at least more than we are. Even the people that are in the community who who have the resources to do that and know how to do that aren't even able to hear about the people they know inside and that it's time for them to go to meet them at the gate. Like, it's it's just not happening that that handshake is happening. Yeah. So, um, so the resource that's out there is underused because it's there's not the connection being made. You know? um, it's an important story. I'm glad you're in it, and I'm glad you spent the time uh, to talk uh, with us about it, Dale. I appreciate it, and let's have more conversations about it. Thanks for your interest, Greg. You appreciate bet. it. Dale Gunter is a professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University.